how does that work? How does that work? I, I get that question quite often when uh, people ask me about what I do. And then eventually they ask me more about OIC, about Oslo International Church. How does that work? And the question doesn't come so much from, from non-Christians or what some Christians like calling unchurched people, which is really a rather weird and somewhat condescending categorization if we think about it. But with these people who aren't Christians or part of an active part of a, of a Christian community, of a Christian expression and tradition of faith, or they don't have a particular story with it, the answer tends to be taken more easily and a bit more matter-of-fact-like. So it goes more or less like this. I'm the, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm, I'm the pastor at an international Christian church. Well, what's that like? Well, there's people from a lot of different places in the world. I, I often say, you know, it's a very, it's a not very original, but very descriptive name. <laughs> also international church, right? So pe- there's people from all over, uh, from a lot of different places in the world and different backgrounds of faith and tradition, backgrounds of church, and we gather together in an English-speaking international community. And then they go, ah, okay, cool. That's it, right? And then there's Christians and others who might not be Christians but either have a history with church or are more interested or more knowledgeable of church history than most. And they are not satisfied with just that answer, and they often will follow up with something like, okay, but so what are you? So what are you? And I know what they mean, of course. Uh, so I'll answer, well, I'm, I'm a Lutheran priest, and OIC has a close partnership with the Church of Norway, but the congregation is uh, interdenominational, um, and it's interdenominational from the pews to the leadership and the board, what you might call a church council. And that's very much who we are, this mix of people. And that's where the question comes. How does that work? How does that work? And I can see a mixture of skepticism and wonder in their eyes. You know? How does that work? And how I answer from there will depend on, of course, on who I'm talking to, how much time we have available, like do you really want the long answer, uh, and how much they actually seem interested in the answer. But part of me just wants to answer, well, it doesn't, but we do it anyway. (laughs) Well, it doesn't, but we do it anyway. And what I mean by that is not that OIC doesn't function as a community of faith. I mean, we're here, aren't we? We gather here every Every week, we have been doing so for the past several years. I've been here for 12 years. But I'm poking at what I often perceive to be the underlying question. So what I mean by saying it doesn't work is that it's not like we came up with a solution. It's not like we came up with a perfect unifying formula of some sort. We haven't really tried either to come with this unifying formula. We're not that prepotent. But we insist on being a congregation anyway. A community of faith that gathers, worships, eats together, shares in the Eucharist, prays for the world and for each other, 
serves each other in different ways and tries to find ways of serving the world around us and works on learning to love each other. We do it anyway. And people have good reasons to be skeptical, though. They probably have more reasons to be skeptical than not. Because sadly, the historical witness of the Christian church is not one of unity. And our contemporary witness is also not one of unity. I don't think it helps much for us as Christians to not be realistic about that and own that. On the contrary, our disunity has not only marred our witness of faith, but it has directly contributed to and caused wars, violence, and sorrow. That's on one end of an extreme. But also, you know, we split for everything. Just one church on every corner, right? One corner for each disagreement we have had. So people have good reasons to be skeptical. And I don't mean by this that we should all be the same throughout the world and history. Yeah. I think that is actually the notion that leads us to so much strife and disagreement, is the notion that we should all be the same. I just mean that we have often dealt terribly with our differences and with our diversity. Not only within the church, of course, but, I mean, at society at large, but also within and from the beginning of the Christian movement. And as we open our Bibles together today, we will be met by a passage by St. Paul that is very well known, but that all too often, I think, is known apart from its context. So it might not be apparent at first what it has to do with what I've been talking about just now. And we'll get there, though. And we will start our reading some verses earlier than what is more common. Uh, and indeed, depending on your Bible translation, you might have a couple of these subtitles splitting our reading. And that tells you something of where we often tend to cut texts and read them. But I want to read it with you, and then we're going to talk a bit more about, about that. And it's in the letter of Paul to the Galatians. We have been spending time with this letter for the a bit over a month now, or almost two months, I guess. And we're getting towards the end of it. And it's from Paul's letter to the Christians in, in the province of Galatia. And we're going to read from verse 13 to verse 26 of chapter 5. And, and again, I think we have NIV there. I'm reading from NRSV, so there may be some small word differences, but you'll, you'll see that it's uh, basically the same. And it says... For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So writes Paul to the churches in Galatia. Part of the challenge with this passage is, as is often the case, one of language and translation. And the thing is, if only we could get our plurals right, if only we could get our plural rights, plurals right, so much of our Bible interpretation would be better off. Actually, thinking of it, if we could get our plurals right, so much of life on this planet would be better off. Growing up in a church from birth, you know, Sunday school and the whole works, I was taught about the so-called works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Many times. And essentially, it was something I had to be careful of and work out in myself. That's how it went, right? This was about me not doing certain things and doing others. Sort of an individualistic and dualistic worldview that young Christians had to daily sort out in their own growing bodies while they battled hormones and temptations. That's, that's how this text applied. And as a result, this was mostly, and I, I dare to say that probably you've heard this, right? This kind of interpretation. It's so common. This was mostly about us living up to standard with our private lives and working on our individual characters. Does it ring a bell? Living up to standard with our private lives and working on our individual characters. The problem is, in this text, as in many others, a lot of yous are y'alls. A lot of yous are y'alls. You all. And that's the tricky thing with English. Right? They're plural. And it's tricky because we have the same pronoun, you, for singular and for plural. And it can be hard to differentiate. And because very many of us are immersed in highly individualistic societies, we tend to automatically think towards the individual you rather than the plural. We do that with so many things in our lives. We do it with the Bible. But when it comes to the Bible, you probably have a safer bet 
if you have to bet and don't know, you probably have a better, better, safer bet in a lot of passages by assuming that a you is a y'all, a you all, rather than an individual you. When in doubt, guess y'all, you're probably right. More times than when it's an individual you. Now, this doesn't mean that this passage or others with a plural you have no relevance for the individual. That's not what I'm saying. It does mean, though, that the passage is speaking into the context of the plural. And very often, the context of community, society. So that whatever we want to understand or apply towards the individual should be considered in that same context of the plural. Also, when reading this text, allowing ourselves to ignore a bit of those added subtitles in our Bibles, which, by the way, if you didn't know, they're not part of the original text. They're added by editors. I don't know if you ever opened Bibles with different translations, or maybe a lot of us speak several languages. Maybe your Bible in your home language has different subtitles, placed a bit differently than the ones in Norwegian or in English, because those subtitles are added by editors to make reading easier and to find things easier. And sometimes they're very helpful, but sometimes they get in the way because we tend to think that those blocks were thought separately and they very often were not. So it's all just one big letter. And then we split things that are sometimes not helpful to split. And doing that here might, might sometimes help us with keeping the context in mind. And that's why we started our reading today at verse 13 so that we more easily can see the frame within which Paul's lists of works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit are set. Right? And we read verse 13 to 15, which says, For you, you all, right, y'all, were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, however, y'all bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. And then we read all the way to verse 24 and 5 and 6 that says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. This whole passage is framed by Paul's discussion about freedom in Christ and community in Christ. And it's framed by the context that Paul is speaking into in the churches in the province of Galatia, where a community, where communities are experiencing division and are experiencing internal strife. A community where some people are trying to impose boundaries that will divide and exclude, or in the least will define inclusion, but something that has to do with their own particularity and not with the grace of Christ. Paul is speaking into the, unit, in the issue of unity in Christ, and he's speaking into the issue of the seeds of disunity in the midst of the Christians in Galatia. That is the context 
within which he gives us these two lists of the works of the flesh and the expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. Which, side note, if you haven't noticed that or heard about that, it's very interesting that it's not fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit is, and it goes on to describe the fullness of the expression of the Spirit with these different things, right? It's not like different things. It's not a pick-and-choose situation. It's an expression of the presence of the Spirit, right? But that's another preaching. And the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's the context where this list is. And the lists, as famous as they have become, they are not Paul's main argument. They are purposefully open-ended. They're not a closed list. And they're purposely stereotypical because they are there to serve his main argument and not the other way around. I think it's worth remembering also that Paul is, who Paul is speaking to, again, Paul is speaking to a community where people are willing to get themselves circumcised for the faith. They are willing, as non-Jews, they're considering adhering to the whole Torah and to follow, to, to be circumcised and follow few purity laws. So Paul's fear is not that they will start doing sorcery and drunken parties. That's not who he's writing to. His fear is that they will, through the law, through religious fundamentalism, enslave themselves to themselves and away from love. That's what he's concerned with. That doesn't mean, of course, that the lists aren't at all important. They actually are very important. And perhaps as they read through the lists, now that we have this you know, context in our head, the Galatians might have found themselves saying some of these words out loud and mumbling through some of them, right? Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, Sorcery, enmities, oh, strife, jealousy, uh, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, and drunkenness. Right? You get my point? All of this stuff is being put together. And it goes all to the end. Things like these, it says, right? And things like these. Things like these indicates both that this is not meant as an exhaustive or even as a particular highlight list, but it also calls our attention to the common elements between them. Why do they form a list? Why can these things be together in a list? That's the thing with lists, isn't it? We make lists by having something in common and between them that makes us think that this can be in a list. What does cabbages and soap have to do with each other? Well, they're on my shopping list because they have to be shopped. They have to be bought. And it's only the fact that they have to be bought by me that makes any sense of them being in the same list. So why, why are these things in the same list? 
That starts us thinking, right? What are the common elements between them? What makes Paul put these things together? And then we start thinking about what we were talking about the last weeks and about how Paul is talking about the flesh as self-indulgence as well, right? As self-serving acts, self-serving love, self-serving expressions. So the lists are important because they land the discussion in, in reality, right? And they land the discussion in the reality of our own bodies and in the reality of the body of Christ. They give us concrete expressions of what Paul is talking about. And they land this discussion in the reality of the body, both in terms of sin and in terms of love. And it's so important that we get that. Because we very easily take the first list and think this is the stuff we do and should not do, right? This is the stuff that has to do with with the body, with what I do, with how I act. And then the fruit of the Spirit is sort of this abstract realm of love, patience, kindness. No, those are supposed to be as present in bodies, in actions, and in the body of the community as the other list. That's why they're set together. That's why they're in a position to each other. So the lists are important because sin, as we talk about sin, we, we talk about things that happen, that have effect, right? Hurt, pain happens in, in the body, in, in my feeling. And I, this sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm splitting the body apart, but it's exactly to say that this is all together, right? Twitches in us. How we deal with ourselves and how ourself, our, ourselves deal with the others, that's where, that's where we hurt, right? That's where we turn violent. That's where greed takes effect. These things are real, and we know them. We know them. We, we know we have seen the pain, right? We have felt it. We have felt our stomach twirl at injustice caused at us, and hopefully we have felt it clinch and press when we've ourselves engaged in injustice. But also love and kindness are to take expression in the reality of our bodies and of the body, of the community. And that is important, right? That we go beyond our own body, but also to the body of Christ and beyond that to society. And the thing is, understanding these lists like this rather than, means that rather than them giving us sort of a shorthand for categorizing sin, they leave us with a much more real and I believe much more urgent question. And the question is, how do we live as followers of Christ in our bodies as we move around? and in the body of Christ, and in society? How do we live in the expressions of these things 
as we live today in the grace of Christ. Rather than just having a shorthand for this is the thing and that's the thing I have to take care of, but how, how is self-indulgence, self-serving, my self-serving tendencies becoming concrete in my life? Maybe it's not idolatry as, as the stereotypical notion we have idolatry, but what is it? How, how is that becoming concrete? And how is love? How is grace? How is kindness? How is patience? How is perseverance being shaped into my actions, into my feelings, into my perceptions, into how this comes out into the world and into how we as a body of Christ express that in the world? How does love express itself in our context? How does it express itself in our community? And how does it tackle the realities of sin that are not just individual, but are also out there, right? That's a bigger question, isn't it? It's a deeper question. It's a harder question. And I... (laughs) I don't want to come up with a new list, you know. Works of the flesh 2022. That's, we got to do the homework. But perhaps towards the end, we might think about our congregation and think about what Paul was dealing with and the issue of disunity in the church. About how easily we walk from each other rather than do the hard work of loving. And I don't think that OAC is a solution (laughs) to the disunity of the church. Again, I don't think we came up with a formula. I don't think OAC is, you know, the answer for the big problem of 2,000 years of Christian church disunity. No. But I do think that we are and can be an expression of hope. An expression of hope. A fleshing out of the call to love each other and to be community and to struggle on the real ground of a community of actual people who come here with their bodies, right? and meet and try to figure out what it means to love each other and what our exercise of loving each other means for the world. An expression of hope. And I think we have a call to live in that. Sometimes people ask me, or, you know, I'm going around, people ask me about OAC and what's the point and what are we even doing? (laughs) And I think there's room for very different kinds of churches, absolutely. But I dream that we can be a bit of a prophetic voice. Again, not because we're perfect. God knows we're not. You know we're not if you've been here more than one Sunday or a couple of minutes, you know. But because there's something about insisting on loving each other and figuring out what that looks like when we look so different, have so many different cultural backgrounds, 
have different traditions of faith, have different theological understanding of different things, and also about some things that are the things that split. But we do it anyway. We insist on it. And it's a microcosmos of an expression for hope. And we're going to fail. We are going to trip. We're going to, at some times, mess up and hurt each other. But I hope we'll be able to ask for forgiveness, show grace. Because again, we're not exactly a solution, we're an expression of hope. And if we think about the world we live in, we need hope. If we think about what political polarization in countries like the US and Brazil, where I come from, has done to our families, to our bodies, to our societies, we need hope. If we think about the wars raging Europe, Ethiopia, and so many, we need hope. Maybe it's a small call. If I think about the size of OEC sitting somewhere in the north of the world, half hidden in the snow in a couple of months. But isn't that the message of the Christian hope? That it comes to exactly where we are, not where we aren't. So what is it going to be? The task is ours if we dare to take it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you. Into the days of struggle and pain and the days of rejoicing that he may bring you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world, serve each other, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen.